You're listening to the University of South Carolina Last Lecture Series, hosted by Scholars United and National Fellowships and Scholar Programs. My name is Scotty Green, Student Coordinator for the Last Lecture Series. If you've never tuned in before, a Last Lecture is, as the name implies, where we ask a faculty member to give a lecture as if it's their last. Today you're going to hear from Dr. Ann Kingsolver from the College of Arts and Sciences. She's been a professor of anthropology for 15 years, and she was chair of the anthropology department from 2008 to 2011. This lecture was recorded live, so expect a little bit of background noise. We hope you enjoy. Here's Dr. Ann Kingsolver's lecture on the topic of listening. Thank you, Elise, and thanks to all the organizers of this series. I really appreciate being asked to come, and it's nice to meet all of you. I'm looking forward to, to talking with you. Um, it seems very ironic to be talking about listening, but believe me, I'd rather be listening to you than being talking, so I'll keep this lecture on the shorter side. I heard they range from 20 minutes to an hour, so I'll be on the shorter side. So we have plenty of time for discussion because I'm really interested in hearing from you. If I were to boil down one lesson from what I've learned in my career as a cultural anthropologist, it's that we can always learn from engaged listening, especially to those whose viewpoints and experiences are different from our own. And in anthropology, we tend to seek those out. With the call for civility, on this campus and nationally, it seems vital that we do listen to one another to find some points of convergence to move forward as a community. When I think about how I became a professional listener, it goes back to my childhood. I grew up um, in Appalachian, Kentucky. We didn't have a television. Instead, my father read aloud most evenings, inside or outside. We spent a lot of time outside. Or we sang ballads, and ballads are another kind of story. Um, as the youngest child, my role was often learning from listening, so I'd be the quiet one who was taking everything in. Storytelling is a very significant cultural practice and form of education in Appalachia. My grandfather grew up in a tenant farming household with 15 children, so I had a lot of cousins, and a lot of them aunts and uncles. We have a signal we're working on here. When the extended family got together, storytelling was the major form of entertainment, and those people were funny, especially I had a whole bunch of uncles and aunts who told really funny stories. They'd retell about, for example, somebody's little brother putting Limburger cheese on the radiator of, the, of a car of a honeymooning couple that was headed toward Mammoth Cave on their honeymoon, and the smell would get stronger and stronger and stronger. They'd retell those stories and retell those stories, and they were always funny. One Thanksgiving, I remember the whole family got snowed in at my house. They came for dinner, and then it snowed so much. Everybody spent the whole night there, and they stayed up all night telling stories. Growing up in a rural area, you also learn to listen to the place itself. If you stand in a field and listen, you can tell what season it is and who's doing what kind of work where in the area, which is especially important when the equipment and the labor are shared between farms. When I was 11, I stood up and told my class, we were supposed to say what we wanted to be when we grow up. I stood up and told my class that I wanted to be an anthropology professor when I grew up. I have no idea why. I didn't even know what anthropology was. Um, every day, I wake up still and I ask myself if I still want to be an anthropologist. And most days, the answer is yes. <laughs> because what we get to do as cultural anthropologists is engage listening. And that's not spying. I know it sounds like it. It's not a passive process. 
Engaged listening means attending very closely to how someone makes sense of and explains their world, and then understanding that perspective in relation to other people's accounts to build a contextual and very textured understanding of whatever we're learning about through conversations with people. So engaged listening also means responsible storytelling because we're accountable to those who share their stories with us. Ethically, we have a whole code about being responsible to them first. In my career, the trajectory of my research has often been shaped by listening to what people say. Too often, I find that policies have been constructed and judgments have been made without people having been actually consulted directly about them. Here are a couple of examples that taught me a lot. For my honors thesis at Rhodes College, I worked at a free clinic for Spanish-speaking women in Tucson, Arizona, and interviewed people on both sides of the border about their health care expectations. What I learned from talking with people countered stereotypes that can be heard in South Carolina today about immigrants coming from Mexico to get health care services in the U.S. What people told me in my research project was that they crossed back over the border into Mexico if possible for health care services, since the public health system was much stronger in Mexico and some services were available to them there that were not available to them in the U.S. In Mexico, there were three different kinds of public clinics. The Centros de Salud, like this, um, like our health department clinics, the Este clinics, which is a worker benefit that all workers have, and EMS clinics, or social security clinics, so they have three choices of public clinics to attend. After college, I worked first organizing local food connections between low-income Memphis residents and farmers in the three surrounding states. After that, I worked for the Indian Health Service in Arizona as an anthropologist. Here's an example of what can happen when people don't listen. This is the flag of the Navajo Nation. I talked with members of four nations in Arizona about specifically health care they were receiving for children's ear infections. There was the perception in the medical community in Phoenix that members of the Navajo Nation were unreliable and could not understand the significance of follow-up appointments for children who had tubes put in their ears since they didn't tend to show up for those follow-up appointments. What I found in talking with people in the Navajo Nation was that they had never been asked about their situation or why they didn't come for follow-up appointments. The answer was very clear. This particular group was nomadic and was traveling with sheep herds over a very large area. So while it was possible to make the first appointment for when they would be in the area, a mandatory two-week follow-up appointment might fall when they were hundreds of miles away, and it would not be practical to do that. What we did in the otitis media or middle ear infection project for the Indian Health Service was listen to that information and then train members of the Navajo Nation as otitis media technicians, so diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up work could all be done within the nation, and those practitioners would understand the spatial context and the challenges that people faced. What I learned from those early experiences in my career was that when we hear stereotypes in any direction, we need to not just accept them, but investigate them. And instead of countering with ad hominem attacks like, that's not true, you're just ignorant, we need to counter with evidence. Social science techniques can be really useful for that kind of work. In graduate school at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, I became part of a collective that was interested in a research method that focused on engaged listening and turned the power relations of research around so that research questions and documentation aims came from the community and not just from individual researchers. This technique, as many of you may know, is called participatory research or community-based participatory research, sometimes CBPR people call it, or PAR, participatory action 
research. As graduate students, we had conversations with activist scholars like Miles Horton and Paolo Freire. Sorry, this is a little bit out of focus. Miles Horton founded the Highlander Center in Tennessee, where a lot of planning for the civil rights movement happened before Africa, because African Americans and European Americans could meet together there. It was illegal in other places, but it was kind of a safe haven when people met to plan the civil rights movement. And that's where We Shall Overcome was written, for example. Listening to Miles Horton taught me that if you're a university student, you're never poor. You have all the resources of the institution behind you, and you can use those skills and resources in collaborative work with communities, and they expect that. They, they don't expect you to act like you, know, you don't have that institution behind you. Listening to Paulo Freire, who founded worker circles in Brazil to teach literacy through learning about working conditions, taught me that education is not an end in itself, but a constant process that has to matter to people every day. A few years later, when I was an adult literacy volunteer in Appalachia, I remembered what I learned from Paulo Freire and discarded the textbook. Um, we had a, a method textbook we were supposed to use for teaching adult literacy. Um, we threw that out and used whatever people needed to learn about as the material that I used in literacy lessons. So we had, um, I had one-on-one -on -one meetings with people who wanted to learn how to read. Um, in the U.S., the adult um, illiteracy rate is 20%, so one in five people in the U.S. Um, is not functionally literate. And in the region where I'm from, it's more like 40%. And so a lot of adults, um, it's a courageous thing that um, people make that decision sometimes um, to, to challenge that illiteracy. So one person that I worked with was a minister, and he wanted to learn how to read the Bible. So what, what we used for learning how to read was the Bible. He wanted to learn to read the book that he was talking about every Sunday. For a domestic worker, we used household chemical labels because she wanted to know what she was using in cleaning houses and what the directions and hazards were. She also wanted to learn how to read food labels because she had to buy food with pictures on the labels. And if you notice in the grocery store, the food with pictures on the labels is more expensive. The generics usually don't have pictures. So she wanted to learn how to read the words so that she could buy the less expensive food. What I was hearing from people I worked with in Arizona and in Massachusetts was that in order to study how people explain and justify inequalities, which I always thought we needed to understand better in order to address them, I needed to go home. That's what people kept telling me. I thought that might mediate the power relations that can be set up between rural communities and outside experts, but I learned over time that these issues are much more complex than that. We're all insiders and outsiders simultaneously, and I'm sure if you thought about it, you would think about ways in which you're an insider and ways in which you're an outsider in different contexts that we have. Um, this depends on the very nuanced ways in which we place ourselves. As I did my ethnographic fieldwork in my hometown, from 1986 to 1989, the residents taught me that place is a verb. We all place ourselves, others, actions, and ideas differently according to the social context. My memo used to say, I almost know her, um, while she ran through kin and neighbor and church and workplace relationships through which individuals could be placed in relation to one another in social networks. So um, she would try to figure out some kind of relationship to a person that she almost get there. In the globalization literature, there's often reference to local knowledge, but local knowledge is not simple to contextualize when you take placing into account. Insider and outsider can be fairly fluid identities if you think about it. They can also be fixed, very fixed, in particular moments. We see this at the national level as cultural citizenship expands and contracts with responses 
to national or political crises, as when Japanese Americans were forced into internment camps. So there was a moment when national citizens um, would be seen as not cultural citizens. We see it at the local level as well. In Nicholas County, I've seen people and their ideas valued, devalued, localized, and distanced through intricate forms of placing the same person as an insider or an outsider, depending on whether they and their parents and their grandparents were born or moved into the community, whether they'd been away to work elsewhere, etc. I've learned from Nicholas Countyans through interviews that I've done every year. So I did two and a half years of field work and then I've returned every year for 25 years. Um, and I just went back last weekend, as we said, for some events that were related to the release of my fourth book, Tobacco Town Futures, Global Encounters in Rural Kentucky. Over time, I realized that what they were teaching me was that small towns are not somehow isolated from or distant from globalization, as stereotypes would have us believe but that they often exist on the landscape because of global industries like tobacco or textile production. Small towns aren't just where people end up because they lost the lottery, but can be where people choose to live. There are a lot of assets to rural life, especially social and natural capital, which some urban residents are realizing in the current economic crisis, and they're trying to buy into those social relationships by buying land in rural areas. For any of you from South Carolina, have you seen this happen? In South Carolina, we're starting to move into more rural areas. Have you seen it? So we can talk about that in the Q&A. It'll be real interesting. I'm going to read you now just a little section of my book. And it's the beginning of the chapter that's called How to Live in a Small Town. In the 1930s, the local future farmers of America came up with a slogan for Carlisle, the little town with a big heart. That's what it says right here. You can only see the box. That's what that saying says. Um, and it's stuck. The sign was put up by the Carlisle Rotary Club in 2002 out by U.S. Route 68 at the turnoff for Carlisle, which passersby would not otherwise know was there. It's not on a main road. There have been various versions of the sign over the years, and I remember watching a slow battle unfold from the school bus window as I rode into Carlisle from out in the county, past one of the little towns with the big heart signs. Jesters or vandals, depending on your perspective, kept crossing out heart and writing mouth. And if the sign got restored to its original saying, they would come again and write the little town with the big mouth. Rumors are certainly part of small town life, um, as this chapter describes. But that was not the kind of first impression Carlisle promoters had in mind for tourists. Neither was the much more sinister KKK someone spray-painted on the back of the sign just after it was erected. I noticed that after this book came out and said this, somebody just painted over there um, the last time I was there. Since that graffiti is seen by those leaving town, whether it's a comment on racism within or beyond the community is ambiguous, and a lot of rumors are ambiguous. You don't know exactly what they mean. No matter what statement is made in a small town, there's always back talk, sometimes made verbally and sometimes silently. In all, given the amount of work people do as volunteers to help each other out and keep the community going, the little town with the big heart seemed an appropriate label for Carlisle. I didn't think about it while I was growing up there, but after returning and think about it, thinking about it as an anthropologist for 25 years, I realized that living in a small, small town requires a set of skills, and that those skills are a resource that people can draw on, especially in hard times. My husband, Mark Whitaker, who's also an anthropologist, suggested I name this chapter How to Live in a Small Town, not because I think I'm good at it, but because I kept telling him 
But that's what I was learning from people as I listened to them. Living in a small town takes a skill set. If you've never lived in a small town, you may not know what I mean by it taking skills. Think about having a Facebook page with thousands of friends and never being able to unfriend any of them. It takes a lot of energy and political skill to maintain that many relationships over a whole lifetime. Living in a small town is not a passive activity unless you just happen to reside there and don't participate in community life. Rural life has often been stereotyped in relation to urban life, like modernity's undeveloped development economy, as a deficient experience, lacking in something. Instead of being somewhere people just end up, many residents choose to stay or move back to small towns because of their positive assets. Jo Lynn Garrett talked with me in an interview about the skills of small town living. She said, I think there's a lot of people that still live here from my high school class and a lot of them work here. I know there's not that much job opportunity, but I think that a lot of people find ways to live here because they want to be here. They've always lived in a small community. They know small community ways and the way you live in a small community, so they stay here. That's where they want to be. Of course, staying is not always a choice, given that it takes some resources to move away. But young adults who commute to school or work elsewhere often continue to live in Nicholas County because of the economic resources like land owned by relatives that a trailer can be put on, and social resources like free childcare and extended kin and friendship networks unavailable in urban areas. A number of people like Jolene Garrett have chosen to move back to Carlisle or to move to Nicholas County from other places. A number of us have also left, and I'll talk about that later in this chapter. But here I want to focus on the skills and work required to keep a small town going. If I were giving advice in this chapter on how to live in a small town, which of course Nicholas County is quite ironic since I no longer live there, I might say, one, listen to stories about past events and the places in which they occurred, since those are often guideposts in current social life. You need to learn the backstory as well as the landscape. Two, do not expect everything to work exactly by the written rules. Justice may be a little flexible, and decisions made more at a community than an individual level. Three, Go to some school events, even if you don't have children. That's where a lot of community life is centered. Four, before you register to vote, find out whether all local elections take place in the primaries. Party politics may not correspond to your expectations. Five, never say anything about anyone that you would not want their relatives to hear. You may be speaking with one of them. Six, subscribe to the local newspaper and read all of it. Seven, do not expect anyone to occupy just one role in town. Your mail carrier may also be your mayor. Eight, if someone invites you to dinner, ask if he or she means a noon or an evening meal. Nine, if you're invited to go fishing, say yes, even if you're a vegetarian. This is a great time to hear those stories back when they were. Between my dissertation work and this book coming out on globalization in rural Kentucky 25 years later, I learned from two comparative research projects in other countries. One of them was in Mexico and California on how people made sense of transnational policies like the North American Free Trade Agreement. I'll tell about a couple of conversations that I really learned from in that project. In my conversations with people about NAFTA and its anticipated effect, as it was just beginning to go into effect, I often ended the interview with the question, in what step or from what source do you think hope exists? Harmon, a volunteer with the Alianza Civica, or Civic Alliance in Mexico City, said this, she was part of a movement to mobilize the electorate at a time when the same party, the PRI, 
had been in power for over six decades. She taught me something about the interview process. I transcribed her interview and took her the transcript the next day. She then took it to her organization, the Alianza Civica, and they discussed the questions that I had asked and wrote up a set of their collective responses to them, giving me an alternative transcript that was based on a group process rather than an individual interview. Here is their revised collective response to my last question. As we listen, we revise our understandings, and the same conversation can be used in different ways. Some of the interview conversations in Mexico I organized with journalists, students, activists, government representatives, and farmers all in one room. And each person would take the transcript and use the information in different ways. As you know, there's not just one way to contextualize or understand a conversation or action. All of that is contingent. What I believe we can do as global citizens and engaged listeners is look for convergent, not the same goals and interests. Two people may be participating in a local food movement, for example, but for completely different reasons. For one, it may be because of concern about a carbon footprint, and for another, it may be because of concern about terrorists poisoning the food supply. But both show up at the farmer's market and keep it going. I've learned that we cannot read politics by reading bodies or assuming we know what someone is going to say. I've learned a lot from students in my career, but two questions asked by students have really stood out in my mind. In a California classroom where I was teaching a theory course, a student asked her fellow students why they insisted on asking her opinion based on her being African-American, as though there were a representative viewpoint. If that were the case, she said, then why didn't they ask her about her perspective as someone with a visual impairment, which she had, but which they could not know from looking at her? Years later, here at USC, a student came up to me after a large lecture in an introductory cultural anthropology course and asked me if a Republican could be an anthropologist. I've thought a whole lot about that one. I hadn't given a lecture about partisan politics that day, or ever, but since then I've worked to include all vantage points in my lectures to make sure that students learn to ask questions about how others might explain their views, rather than just assuming a simple right or wrong. I also started wondering if disciplinary majors tend to map onto political party politics, um, since there are deeper cultural logics at play in our society that emphasize either social or financial bottom line. The most recent comparative project I did was on the tea industry in Sri Lanka, comparing it with the tobacco industry I'd long been studying. In that project, I learned something similar to what I'd learned decades before, working with the Indian Health Service. Many people in the tea industry were telling me that the future rested on the choices made by young people, and that they'd be choosing not to go into agriculture. The tea industry, like most, is not idealized like it's advertised. Many workers have been living in the same quarters to which their ancestors came as indentured workers from India in the British colonial period. So these are called the lives, and one whole family is living inside in a room on the None of the tea industry managers I interviewed had asked the young people whether they wanted to work on the tea estates as adults. So, in some collaborative research projects that included Sasikumar Balasundaram, who's getting his PhD here now at USC. Um, I asked them what they thought about the future. Here's one young man's take on globalization. I think this project is the two years. Yeah. 
the students designed that project, and I asked them what they wanted to, the project to be about, and they said youth unemployment, because the biggest issue for them was the unemployment uh, was the unemployment crisis for young people. Thirty percent of university graduates were unemployed, and thirty percent of eighteen to thirty-five year olds in Sri Lanka. So for that period of their lives, many people felt shame. They were isolated. Um, and, and there were high rates of suicide. So this was a big problem. And that was one of the unemployed university graduates that it, they had interviewed. Here's what a young mother on a tea estate said about my listening to her and then talking with you because I, I told her during the interview, as I told everybody, that um, I asked permission to share their words with, with groups exactly like this. And she wanted to talk to you directly. Young people said that they'd like to stay in their rural communities rather than migrating out if they could make a living wage and contribute to their communities. Inspired by the young people in rural communities in Sri Lanka, I sponsored an essay contest on the future in my hometown for 7th, 8th, and ninth graders and published the winning essays as the postscript in my book about their community. I got to meet them last week. Um, here's what one of them, Ashley Garcia, said about the future of our home community. This is Ashley. She said, in this county, everyone knows everyone, and we wouldn't want it any other way. Residents in Nicholas County who've been here all their lives try to leave, but they always return to give back to the community that gave them everything. Nicholas County may not be the best place to work, but it's a great place to live. Most people would say that this town depends on its agriculture, but that isn't entirely true. This town also depends on the residents that have pride for living in the county. The future of our county depends on our residents and our economy. If our residents do not try to help make the future of our county better, then it won't change. The adults aren't the only ones who can change the future. The young adults and children can even help, because the young adults and children are the future. And that's what Ashley had to say. When I met with Ashley and the other young people at their school last Friday, they told me that their top concern was not about their jobs in the future, but about what is happening in the community right now. With the factory closed and tobacco falling as a cash crop, the number one industry right now is the underground trade in prescription drugs. It affects everyone they know. A mother told me that in a class of first graders in my hometown, 70% of the children have at least one parent employed. Think about that for just a minute. 14 out of 20 kids, so 70%. Think about what that means for the children, for the grandparents, or the older siblings trying to hold households together, and for the community. There's no jail in town. town's too small, so people are held in other counties. But unless a person has a felony charge and is in a federal prison, there's no access to drug rehabilitation, job training, counseling, or other service, or services, so the, the problem is cyclical. The Florida governor last week just cut a $600,000 program to track prescription drugs. So carloads of Kentuckians will keep being sent to Florida to fan out with fake prescriptions and drive back to hand over half the OxyContin and other painkillers to the trip sponsors and keep a portion for themselves to sell or use. Listening to Nicholas Counties, I believe that we can't talk about things like local economic development by just talking about food systems and sustainability and tourism but we need to include all constituencies in discussions of the future, all class groups, the literate and the non-literate, 
and the formal economy in which new industrial jobs are sought, like shipping departments for Amazon.com, which are increasingly located in rural Kentucky, and the informal economy, like the underground prescription drug trade, because that is the economy, and that's what people want to talk about. I'll continue to listen to and learn from the residents of my hometown and students in the classroom for the rest of my career, but that's my last lecture. Now I'd like to hear from you.
Um, I looked at a number of schools and I was accepted to a number of schools and I chose to go to Memphis because um, Kentucky, rural Kentucky does not see itself as the South. It, it's, it sees itself as kind of a little bit of everything. North, South, East, West, you can claim place yourself anywhere. Um, my family had, my father had volunteered to be medical Central Africa when I was a child, you know, I went to live there and then came back to rural Kentucky. I think that's why I'm in Anthropologist. Um, and we also lived a couple other places and then I always came back. But um, because I was really interested in Africa, I was looking at programs they had. I was also a dancer, I was taught dance. So I was interested in the place they had both anthropology and dance. And I wanted to go to Memphis because I wanted to learn more about the U.S. South. I didn't understand the history very well. And, and that led to a project. Um, for the bicentennial of the county, the 200th year of the county, they asked me to come back and, and um, uh, speak to the historical society. And I thought, well, I'll use this opportunity to look at the history of the community. So I went to the National Archives and I looked at um, who was living in the county at the time of its founding and what they were doing. And 200 years ago, one in six residents of Nicholas County, which is a very hilly place, was an enslaved African. And when I went to school, I was told that there was no slavery in Eastern Kentucky. It was only in that flatland in Western Kentucky because there were no plantations. But that was because I was very ignorant of how um, how enslaved African labor was used. So New York City was built by enslaved labor. Um, and there's a film in the library, Thomas Cooper, called Unearthing It. Um, the slave labor is a very big film at that point. Um, but anyway, I was uh, when I went to college. I was really interested in the architecture. Um, it was kind of a perfect place. And um, I was very excited about my classes uh, and got involved in, in music. But it was socially, I think it was difficult. I wasn't that adept socially in my hometown. Um, so I made a few very close friends that I'm still friends with. Um, and I, I didn't. I guess I met people through being in plays and that kind of thing in musical groups. Um, but I, I wasn't hugely gregarious person. So I think I just stuck to my same type. I love to read and just read all night and lived in a bay window. <laughs> That's a little bit weird. But yeah, it was, I had older siblings and they'd been to college and I had visited their campuses and that made all the difference. And my parents had been to college. My grandfather had parents had both been to college. And I think first-generation university students have a harder time, and I really tried to reach out to those students at USC, because I think if you don't have a map for what's going on, it's very difficult to know, no matter how well you have it.
and everything counting back up to me. And so it's hard to manage services, and people are having to take long weekends. So the hospital in my hometown has been independent for 15 years, and last month it was taken over by uh, a lady at St. Joseph's Hospital in Washington, D.C., an hour away, to manage it and try to keep it open. So services have been very difficult with how many people do we have uh, to be able to maintain those services. So I think the regional perspective that there's going to have to be more collaboration, especially between urban and rural regions, because if you've got urban people wanting that rural charm, Numbers. The, the population sign in Carlisle hasn't changed in a long time, but it's not the same people. So I'm thinking also about the, the depopulation of some people get displaced and they move from a permanent place to a There's that going on. There are people moving back here from the Yeah. 
really great book called Out in the Country, which is about rural Native American young people and what they do if they're if they only uh, have maybe a couple of people in their community who have been home. So how do they they actually meet at a Walmart um, strip mine site um, and have bread on their back. So people find very creative ways when they go through it that. But I think that finding ways um, to connect with other people in a military way um, to have a very global experience uh, that can take sometimes um, some aspect of that creativity. Are you really not? Yeah, I can't remember the email, but they're very rural Tennessee. I pulled them very rural. Yeah. I hope you get to see them. They do some really cool stuff. What I like about Highlander is that um, they have rocking chairs in a circle. There is no, they don't set up like this. There is no activation. Nobody who's, uh, who's in charge. And for example, after the Bhopal incident um, where Union Carbide had a factory that exploded and a lot of people died, Union Carbide also had a plant in Institute, West Virginia. And those workers wanted to know what chemicals they were using because it was a chemical accident that happened in Bhopal. And so they went to Highlander and they said, Can you help us understand what chemicals we're working with here in the mill? So the way Highlander did that was they didn't bring in chemists to just teach them them what chemicals they were using. They brought people together, people who knew chemistry, lawyers, people who knew the industry, and they had a workshop where um, the workers at Union Carbide learned how to use the chemistry textbooks to look up what they were handling so they would understand the process of what it did to the water and what the water properties, what to do if there was a spill. Um, and if somebody, if a lawyer or a chemist started pontificating, how they had to signal, and one of the staff members <laughs> so that's how the dispatchery research works, and, and the other ladies have time to do the work that they do. And there are a couple of other places you can find them. Anything else? Yes. These kind of methodologies and they're using the secret stories and policy making. What would you say are the qualities or characteristics that make it a good listener? Can I hear that? She asked in interviewing. Um, what are the qualities that make a good listener? I think you have to be very active. That's why I said engaged listening, because it's not passive. If you notice, um, you can't just kind of smile and come off, because you really have to be paying attention to what people are saying. Um, and you have to, once in a while, figure out how to reflect back. Is this what you mean? Or ask a clarifying question. It's kind of exhausting, actually, to be a good listener. You would think that you could kind of kick back, um, but it's it's um, exhausting. So you really have to focus and uh, and really respect the person. I think if you're respectful, especially I think especially if the person has very different viewpoints from your own, that you listen extra hard and you really try to understand um, what their motivations are, what their inspirations are, what they care about, because I've learned that, you know, even if you disagree with somebody's policies, that they don't set out to to ruin people's lives. I tell my students this about things like the 
failed policies like the Green Revolution. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation really wanted to see if they could come up with something that would feed everyone. Their motivations were very good. It didn't work, but they had very good intentions. And so you don't just say, oh, that was a bad project. So I think that's kind of useless. And so always asking people, well, what did you have in mind there? What were your hopes for that? And trying to learn from that. Because a lot of times you can find points of convergence, these points of convergence that I'm mentioning. And only if we find those can we find a way to go forward. Because otherwise, if people just don't listen to each other, they get really stuck. And so you can't you can't move anywhere as a, as a society. So I, I think that's, that's part of it is just paying really close attention. And then always what I try to do is to give people back their works. They, uh, they're sharing their time with us. So, for example, um, if, somebody, if I ask somebody for an interview and they're working in a field, then I work with them while we talk. Or an elderly person may need a ride to the doctor, so I drive them to the doctor and ask if we could talk about it. And with elderly people, I've learned some amazing things, um, especially narrating the landscape. I'll give you an example. I was driving a woman in her 80s around uh, the county one day, and she pointed up at a hillside that was just in pasture, because most of the hills are the amount of trees and other trees fields. She pointed up to this green pasture, and she said, there was a whole community. That was Dr. Ann Kingsolver speaking as part of the U of SC Last Lecture series. If you liked what you heard, be sure to like, subscribe, and check out our other Last Lectures. If you want more information about this series and other events and opportunities from Scholars United, check out our social media at Scholars United on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Updates about upcoming Last Lectures will be posted there. Also, be sure to check out National Fellowships and Scholar Programs at sc.edu nfsp.
Thank you so much for listening. Now go live today like it's your last.